0: I think the last two years, has really taught us that the whole industry can, can turn on a dime and we have to be nimble enough to pivot with it.
1: And taking a proactive approach at keeping patients healthy and happy and independent.
2: Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Be Advised, where today we meet with experts to discuss home health and skilled nursing facilities as partners to inpatient rehab programs. Home care, subacute, and skilled nursing facilities play a vital role in the post acute continuum. And when the care is well coordinated, patients are able to sustain outcomes. However, traditionally, the cost to provide this care has significantly strained the Medicare programs. MedPAC reported that over 43% of Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries that are discharged from acute care hospital were discharged to a post-acute setting, and that Medicare spending was roughly $60 billion on care provided across these four settings, including inpatient rehab facilities, long-term care hospitals, home health agencies, and skilled nursing facilities. Medicare fee for service spending on skilled nursing facilities is roughly $28.5 billion, and for home health agencies, the spend was nearly $17.9 billion, and these numbers continue to climb. Inpatient rehab spending, on the other hand, was only $8 billion. The spending in general is what has caused a significant shift in reimbursement and changes to the post-acute provider payer models. And most recently, skilled nursing facilities and home health agencies saw significant payment reform. On this episode of Be Advised, we will be meeting with Trey Kabizna, Director of Mary Free Bed at Home, and Kirsten Cudney, our subacute administrator, who will share with us the significant evolution of providing care amongst the changing reimbursement models. My name is Joyelle Pavey, and I serve as the Vice President of the Mary Free Bed Advisory Group, and I'm also the host for today's podcast. Co-advisors today are Janice Ramsey and Sherry Mullins, both who serve as Regional Directors of Care Transitions. Kirsten and Trey, we are so happy to have you on our podcast. Both of you have been tremendously supportive of the advisory group, helped us develop the Care Transition Program, and engaged in payer pilots with us. You've also really supported us as we've developed our continuing care network of aligned providers, and we really just wanted to share your expertise with our listeners today. Before we jump into the discussion today, Kirsten and Trey, would you mind telling our audience a little bit more about your roles at Mary Free Bed and a little bit more about yourself?
0: Um, I'm Kirsten Cudney. I'm the administrator of the Subacute Rehab here at Mary Free Bed. I started in the post-acute senior care, long-term care arena in 2013 and became a licensed nursing home administrator in 2017. I came to Mary Free Bed in 2017. winter of 2018 um, and I was very drawn to the mission to serve more people and that we are above the national averages for helping patients to return to the home and community um, was an extra you know guiding light in bringing me to Mary Free Bed. My passion to serve others in this field really stems back to uh, you know family needs and realizing that hospitals long-term care rehab aren't places where people want to go. So I see my job as getting barriers out of the way for the clinicians to be able to make those great experiences for patients who, at the end of the day, are able to get that good quality care in the right place. Great. Thank you. Welcome, Kirsten.
1: Yeah, and thank you. Uh, My name is Trey Kabizna. I'm the director and administrator for Mary Free Bed at Home. I'm also a physical therapist. Uh, Got into home health in 2006. So I've been in home health for about 15 years. Started as a physical therapist treating patients in their homes and then transitioned uh, slowly into being a supervisor and then a director of operations and actually was in the sales role for about five years, really meeting with physicians and hospitals and systems, helping to understand their needs um, and the needs of the patients as they transition through that post-acute care continuum. Just recently in uh, September of 2019, moved into this role as an administrator of Mary Free Bed at Home. And boy, like you said... significant reform, the largest reform to home health for sure in 20 years happened with PDGM. Passion-wise for home health, I mean, as a treating clinician, seeing the needs of patients and their families and the support that they need out in the community. For Mary Freebed, who prior to 2016 did not have a home health service line and really felt that there was a huge need to be able to um, bring Mary Freebed out into the home and out into the community with a patient population that needs a lot of resources. So I just, I'm just grateful to be able to to have the opportunity to, to serve families, to serve patients, to serve this community uh, and to support the field staff and the um, office teams that make it all happen.
2: Thank you so much for joining us today. We've seen a lot of change in the industry over the last couple of years. One of the things that we really wanted to start today's podcast with is your perspective on developing a robust post-acute network in this challenging environment. And we also wanted to understand what a network means to you as a home health agency provider and as a skilled nursing facility provider.
0: Well, you're spot on when you say, you know, ever evolving, ever changing. I think the last two years has really taught us that the whole industry can can turn on a dime and we have to be nimble enough to pivot with it and recognize that healthcare facilities, we're not standalone, right? It's a patient's rehab journey is not finished or complete when they leave Mary Freebed. It's almost as if we're in partnership with whatever other healthcare entity has been invited to continue providing care to our patients. So building connections with community partners um, and other care settings is critical to maintain high quality and long lasting outcomes and prevent rehospitalizations hospitalizations and maintain those good outcomes for patients. And that partnership goes back to the referring acute care setting. It doesn't necessarily start with the post acute industry. I think it starts at the, at the acute setting. Hospitals are relying on post acute care settings more than they ever have been for that high quality and still fast patient throughput. So, to think about that as a, a two way street, we have to really develop that good communication with the referring acute care settings from the start. And that I feel, is, is the beginning of what will create a robust post-acute care network. Thank
2: you so much, Kirsten. Trey, what about you? What is your perspective on all this?
1: And Kirsten hit on some really key points. I think about continuing care networks or high-performing networks or preferred provider relationships with post-acute care continuums and acute care hospitals. I think what I'm seeing especially is where this patient spends most of their time or where people spend most of their time is out in the community, in their house or in their dwelling place. If you think about putting the patient in the center of the entire world, outside of an of, of a hospital, there's a lot of people that influence those that patient's or that person's recovery. The whole idea of wellness and um and their entire healthcare experience. So whether it's their primary care doctor or it's specialists or it's family or it's education, there's a whole host of people that have to touch that person's life to try to improve and be proactive with somebody uh, so that they're able to just optimize their health, right? And and I think sometimes we think about post-acute care trying to reduce cost, you know, trying to reduce the strain on the healthcare system. But I think if we can think about And you'll hear me say this later about case management, more of a care management approach is taking a proactive approach at keeping patients healthy and out of hospitals and happy and independent where they live.
2: Yeah, that's so important, Trey. I think you hit on something, that proactive approach. That's something we've worked with you and Kirsten on as we were developing our Continuing Care Network. Our network was really set up to be a sharing of best practices. So as a group, if we saw a way to decrease falls or readmissions, we were sharing that with the rest of our community partners. And we were also looping in physician advisors to help problem solve some of the medical challenges. And so I think you nailed it. It's been a proactive approach to making sure that the patients continue to benefit as they progress along in the continuum of care. So I think it's a really interesting discussion that we're having today, and I'm sure Janice and Sherry are going to talk to you about similar things today. Here's Janice Ramsey, Regional Director of Network Care Transitions, with our next question.
3: Kirsten and Trey both hit on this when they talked about, they both have experience with acute care providers and having a network built from them and then really developing a whole network. So what's been your experience, not only from the acute care perspective across the board, what's your your experience in the role of a post-acute network in enhancing how patients transition through the healthcare environment?
1: I think um, my experience has been in keeping the patient informed and their family members informed. Every step of the way, I think too many times a person or a patient gets into a system, quote unquote, and it's like a conveyor belt, and they just move through it. And oftentimes they're in a time of their life where they're not uh, they're not healthy, they're not thinking straight. It's they're in an institution or they're in some place that's kind of foreign to them. And there's a lot that is being done and said that they're that they're just not able to absorb. I think it's important that I have seen uh, enhancing patient transitions is- to have successful transitions is keeping the patient informed and the family informed or caregivers or whoever it is, every step of the way and slowing down and making sure they understand what's happening through that continuum and through that, that transitional process. So, uh, and that means early conversations. Like, um, I think one thing that has worked really well between Mary for bed at home and Mary for bed, Subacute rehab is something that we have worked on over time is, discharge planning early at the point if as close to admission as possible. So when a patient comes in to subacute rehab, as we're talking here about subacute rehab and home health, is giving that patient a choice up front. Hey, there's a next likely next step here that you transition home. And when you go home, there's a possibility you might need some additional help. Um, Have you ever heard of home health before? Or have you ever had outpatient therapy before? So having them think about there is going to be a next step. And that early patient transition really enhances the patient's perception and their outcomes of how well they do once they do eventually discharge. So I I think communication is pinnacle, I think, um, with patients and their families early on and often and at their level that they can understand it.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, Trey. Um, Setting up those good patient expectations and recognizing that it's not always a linear journey, and that when a patient discharges, and I mean, you you and I have shared patients like this, that when a patient discharges subacute and signs on with home health care, subacute might not be done communicating with that patient or with the home health care providers, and there's been times where. It's been the call between you know, the home health nurse and the subacute social worker that's brought a patient right back from home and admitted back to subacute rehab without the patient having to go through the trauma again of going to the ED, making sure that that line of communication within the healthcare continuum is always open and that we're not just closing that door once they're on the next step um, of the continuum, they might come back. And that, that's what's making sure that the patient's getting those good outcomes.
3: And just to add to that too, I know you guys are talking about the post acute network and sniff to home, but you know we also have our network where we've engaged both with both of you guys on a couple occasions and, done handoffs and make those follow up calls and say it's really, we have some barriers. So I think that definitely having that network is really enhanced. The patients don't aren't stuck they if they have questions they know who to go to having that network really helps to enhance that so um we want to shift gears now a little bit too kirsten i want to talk about i know trey Trey brought pdgm up when he mentioned too but i think in in early on with joel's conversation too she brought up that we've had a lot of payer reform Mm -hmm. in the last several years so you know with the implementation of the pdpm 2020 you know have you seen a shift in the type of care that you're delivering within your facility with that change
0: That's an interesting question. I wouldn't say necessarily the type of care that we've provided has changed, but I would say that what type of care we provide when has changed. So, the former payment model was all volume driven. So, reimbursement was driven on the minutes of therapy that patients received in a day. The patient driven payment model is truly that it's patient driven. And so, it's no longer incentivizing facilities to threshold the volume of therapy that they're giving per patient per day. It's very specific to not only that patient's diagnosis, but how they're able to present and how they're able to participate in their rehab journey. So allocating the reimbursement to what disciplines are providing the care when. We're seeing less of all patients receiving the same amount of therapy, and more conversation with the provider team and with the treating therapists and and clinicians of, you know, what specific therapy would this patient benefit from? Would they benefit from more occupational therapy um, and less physical therapy? Okay, let's design their treatment plan for that. Do they really have a higher, you know, nursing level of need? And they might not need as much therapy you know they're able to do their activities of daily living they're able to ambulate well they're really here for more nursing care okay the nursing is what drives our reimbursement on that one we're not giving every patient the same volume of care it's looking at them individually
1: PDGM it is almost a mirror of PDPM you're spot-on and you saying that volume what was before PDPM volume based is now value based
2: you are listening to Be advise our Mary Fruit Bed Advisory Group podcast. Here's Sherry Mullins, Regional Director of Network Care Transitions, with our next question.
0: So with that said, Trey, have you seen a shift in how and where care is being put, delivered?
1: Now we're delivering it in a home. So in a skilled nursing facility or in a subacute rehab, they're getting therapy or nursing at a different volume level, but every day. When they go home with home health, it's a similar thing. Home health is not providing a visit every day while the patient is at home. We're providing the right discipline at the right time based on a care plan, based on the patient's needs. So PDGM, again, like what Kirsten said, is it's patient-driven groupings model. So the only difference is payment versus groupings. And groupings is a long algorithm that I will not go into. It would take a whole another 30 minutes to discuss. What it is, is the clinicians and the providers who are getting together to come up with the patient, to come up with a care plan that meets that patient's goals, the patient's goals, not our goals. And it's for things like nursing and physical and occupational therapy and speech therapy and home health aid on there and a social worker. We're not, we're not all coming in, in one on the first day or even the second day. It is appropriately layering in those disciplines so that the patient is getting what they need, when they need it, and at a rate where they can actually digest what we're teaching them and what they need to actually learn over a period of time. Most of these patients that we're seeing are not going to get better in 20 days or 30 days. Oftentimes, it takes a couple of months to fully have this like behavior modification, this behavior change, And we're there for the long haul. It's more of a case management model, and we're working alongside their doctor and their family to really, truly make sure that they are staying home and reducing their risk for rehospitalization or any place that they don't want to be, like an emergency department.
0: With that said, have either of you received any feedback from clinicians as it relates to regulatory changes and the overall impact of care being delivered across the continuum?
1: Yes, we have. What we're doing more now than than what we did two years ago or January 1st of 2020, we are doing more case conferencing, more interdisciplinary team conferences. It is forcing, in a good way, nurses and therapists to be more collaborative and to be more creative with their care plans and not to think about, I've got 30 days to get in and out of here. How am I going to get this patient better? But let's take, let's take a look at this from a, from a longitudinal standpoint. They have, I believe bought in and understand the idea of value versus volume. But it was a change. It was a shock to the system, primarily for therapists who were used to doing a lot of therapy, especially pre-PDPM and pre-PDGM. But it didn't take long because it makes sense. It makes sense from a system level, from a the evidence-based practice that you see, all of the uh, research that's out there. It makes sense um, to provide that value wins over volume and providing the right um, the right care at the right time uh, for what the patient needs.
0: We've definitely seen a shift in patients admitting that are more medically complex and nursing complex than before, you know, less of the straightforward physical therapy, occupational therapy needs, and, and more of the critical nursing elements um, are driving patient care in, in, in the skilled nursing and subacute realm. And with that comes a heightened focus on documentation for the team, uh, so it's not just the diagnosis gets us into the category, right? It's what is the documentation saying? What is the pic- picture that we're painting in, in the nursing notes? So yes, they have COPD, but are we saying that they're also short of breath while lying down? It's no longer just you know, singular to what the provider says in their diagnosis list. It's, it's how we tell that story, and those stories are becoming more and more nursing intensive than, than we've ever seen.
2: So Kirsten, you mentioned the shift in the complexity of the patient. Where were those patients going before? Were they going to a long-term care hospital before and now they're shifting to skilled nursing because you're taking more complex patients and you're seeing this increase or is this increase in complexity coming from documentation and a changing clinical profile of the patient?
0: The push for hospital throughput has been tremendous lately, and I don't know if that's necessarily driven by PDPM, PDGM, insurance changes, or of the other impacts of the healthcare realm in the last two years. I think that patients are being discharged from the hospitals sooner, and the focus on getting home from the hospital, patients are going home from the hospital more complex than they ever have to. So therefore... Those that are left at the hospital that need subacute and skilled nursing placement are even more complex than than those going home.
1: Kirsten, like you, you're right. Like so, what has happened is I also think that due to managed Medicare, we have seen um, a reduction in the length of stay, availability. So just managed Medicare, you know, tends to uh, also focus on value, and from their perspective there's a catalyst here to try to get patients out of a hospital faster, out of a skilled nursing home faster, off of home health services faster. So there's an idea around utilization of healthcare services. I mean managed managed products, their job is to manage healthcare and manage utilization. And I think that's uh, that has also added into a faster throughput from acute care to SNF, uh, SNFs sniffs into LTACs and ERFs and home health, all of it.
2: So with the rise in the clinical complexity that you're both describing, what have you both had to do from a home health care perspective and skilled nursing facility perspective to improve the ability of your clinicians to care for these patients? Because of this very different patient population, you're now getting paid based on clinical complexity. Have you had to change some of your education and training for your direct care staff? What about adding physician support? Have you guys had to add physician support as your clinical profile is changing?
0: Yeah, from a skilled nursing standpoint, it's it's been a lot of that just-in-time education and education-provided Um, You know, at the time we receive a referral. So if we're going to take a patient that has a life vest, those are few and far between. But it's critical that the whole team knows how to operate that and watch um, to make sure that the patient has a good experience with that. So rolling out those educations before the patient gets here, once the patient gets here, and doing it again in six months when we get another patient that has a life vest. Because, again, it's not a very common thing. But making it a priority that we're able to adapt and accommodate education like that when it's needed and not just sticking to a, well, we do annual education, you know, once a year. That doesn't work anymore. It's for every patient, every time they admit, and making sure that the clinicians have not only the skills, but the comfort level and the confidence to do it.
1: Upskilling nurses and therapists, we have seen in home health, more patients going home on IVs, IV antibiotics, tube feeds, ports, drains, things that typically patients wouldn't go home with as much. They did They did in the past, but a lot more of it now. And a lot more wound vacs and tricky wounds that we're seeing that are nurses and even therapists. So we're talking about therapists now doing wound care. That is a that is within the scope of practice uh, to provide wound care for patients. A lot of therapists who didn't do wound care in the past are now learning and remembering <laughs> and re-educating themselves on how to do wound care. And then also, I think it has added to the actual operational team too, right? So you have to have more educators. You have to have an extra wound care certified nurse or educator on hand. There's certainly more emails and more education that's being pushed out to clinicians or done in the form of meetings, right, than ever before. So the the impact of a more complex patient going home means that they, we have to be ready to receive them and the clinicians have to have confidence knowing that they can have positive outcomes.
0: And I think part of that too relies on, you know, leaning into the network, you know, the post acute care network that we're we were talking about, right? And if we're taking a patient that has, you know, some some complexity that we don't often take well, are there resources at that referring provider where they're able to give us those educational tools or are they able to provide us with a therapist to come, you know, do an in-service at bedside with that patient when they admit? Can we then do that on the referring end out to home health care, really leaning into what resources are available, not just within our own database, but within, within the whole network?
2: So, Kirsten, you're describing something really important, which is my next question. You were describing clinical complexity and the need to do just-in-time training. But as acute care facilities are discharging patients and trying to find a facility that's the best fit for the patient based on their clinical care needs – what should the providers be looking for? Should they be searching for facilities that aren't necessarily doing just-in-time training but have specialty programs already in place? Or should they be looking for ones that have lower readmission rates or better long-term outcomes? So what are the drivers
0: that you think we should all be looking at? Rehospitalization rates is critical. Um, And I think that that that's a super important quality metric to look at. Um, Return to home and community, you know, how many of their patients are returning to settings that they previously were at versus how many are discharging to, you know, a long-term care facility or assisted living, things like that. Um, So there's success rate at getting patients back to where they want to be and what their outcomes were before they came to rehab. Functional status, uh, the ability of patients to um, get up and move around. Um, on their own with adaptive devices and not necessarily with the assistance of others, um, those are critical outcomes.
1: Yeah, I agree. And if you're going to be communicating with this post-acute care network, I think having industry knowledge, having the actual staff to be able to collaborate, but I think one one of the key things here is when you're looking at a new employee or somebody who's working on your team, if this is going to be a team approach, you want to have a team of people who are coachable, who are collaborative, you know, some of the entities that you're working with, whether it's an infusion company or a supply agency or DME or what assisted living, it might not be the most flashy entity that maybe has the best outcomes, but they're incredibly collaborative. They're willing to learn. They're willing to change and adapt. So that that's a key piece. Um, I think to any team is having people who, who are willing to be a team and to actually put in the work and to communicate well, um, and to make changes. So sometimes it's not always like the absolute perfect entity, but it's the, it's the right team that fits with you, with your agency or your industry.
2: You're listening to the be advised podcast. If you'd like more information, please email us at advisory group at maryfreebed.com. Here's Denise Ramsey, regional director of network care transitions with our next
3: question. So I know that we keep talking about PTs and nurses and their involvement, but I think there's been a shift with this PD, PDGm and PDPM to involve more case management, more care management, as we call it here at Mary Freebed. Trey, I'll ask you first: Is what do you think has really been that shift? You know, how are you seeing more interaction with, with care management or or social work with this new uh, pay model?
1: Um, care management, I think we're really home health is really following a model of the physician office with their RN or their NP or their APP. And oftentimes, um, I don't know if you are aware about, maybe this is probably going eight years back now, when Medicare um, had an initiative to to put care managers into physician offices to manage the top, let's say the top 20% of the most unhealthy patients of that physician. And their job was to manage the care. Of those patients and to be proactive and keep them out of the hospital, call them monthly, have them come into the office, have more touch points. And so what we've adopted for home health is that care man- that same and similar model of sending a nurse out to the home to be sort of the quarterback of the care plan and the patient's plan of care. And then communicating with that physician and oftentimes that care manager in that office, because ultimately this is the patient's care plan. But it's the physician who is signing the orders and the physician who is overseeing the entire care plan. So we're sort of hitching our wagon to that physician and their care manager. And this is much more of a long haul. This is not, again, I'll say it again, it's not a two-week or a three-week or a four-week stint in home health. Now, this is, let's take a look at this from a lifetime standpoint. Now, we're not seeing patients for life, but we are seeing them for two, three, four months, sometimes six months however long it takes for that patient to reach their goals. And we're chunking pieces of education, right? I think that's the piece that maybe I didn't say is from a care management model, instead of giving them five pieces of homework, we're giving them one, maybe two, and then coming back a week later and saying, how did your homework go? Are you seeing signs of improvement, right? And then we'll give them another piece of homework and come back another week. How is it going? And so it's this chunking up of, of information and education that the patient can fully understand what they're trying to accomplish to meet their goals, right? And then they're going to have such a better... If, if we can involve, care management standpoint, if we can involve the patient, they're going to be much more convinced and they're going to be their satisfaction is going to be so much higher because they have been a part of the care plan and a part of their recovery and their rehabilitation process, so if we can involve them, which we do that's our whole intent or the family members, the outcome's going to be so much better
0: I think the other piece that goes into care management too is all the managed care insurances are coming with care managers that are following the patients from the time that authorization is received at the acute hospital through the subacute rehab stay to the time we get authorization for home health care and into their home health care um, journey. So leaning into the resources that those insurance care managers can provide as well. And having those conversations with them from provider to provider standpoint helps us to better set the patient and the family up for what comes next in the journey and make sure that they have the right expectations and are ready to receive the information that the clinicians are providing them.
3: Yeah, thank you guys for both sharing that because you know if, with our care transitions program that we have with our post acute network, that's kind of what we do is we also add in that care management. There's multiple layers. It's not just exactly what we talked about those silos. It's a whole network now. So you have the therapist and the the skilled nursing facility or the home care, but you also have that care management model where you're actually looping back to you know the acute care provider or or the the payer to really help them understand what the needs of the patient are.
0: I don't know if this ties in, but just one. You know, difficult thing that I think both of our, our teams are running into is how difficult it is to get placement into a skilled nursing or a long-term care facility or even assisted living right now um, and how that plays into our discharge planning and the transition to the next level of care. If our clinical recommendation is you need 24 hours of provision, if the patient's not willing to seek that out, doesn't have the finances for it, or there's truly no bed available for them in the community... What do you do? And that's where you have to lean into that communication with the network and where they might discharge subacute rehab and sign on with home care, but subacute rehab, we can't close the door to them yet because we're still we're still on the hook for the next you know, 30, 60, 90 days until that full episode of care is complete. And with the challenges in the industry kind of set up against us in, in discharge planning for those patients, it's even more important that we have those lines of communication open.
2: You two have certainly provided a lot of really valuable insight today and just a different way of thinking about how we can all partner together regardless of what level of care that we all work in. What you're really saying is if we all collaborate together, the overall care for the patient improves. I like how you're rising to the challenge of being able to care for patients with increased clinical complexity and how you've also adapted to these new reimbursement models. What you two are describing are really a true partnership and collaboration among the providers and being able to effectively communicate and collaborate across the continuum. When we do that, the patient wins and patients continue to do well over the course of their episode of care. We just can't thank you enough for sharing your insight with us today. Do you have any other final comments or thoughts regarding what we discussed?
1: What? we're trying to do in post-acute care is trying to do a lot more with a lot less. In order to do that well, you have to have a good team and you have to adapt and you have to be creative. And so in a way, sometimes we grumble about PDPM and PDGM and the reforms, but it challenges us uh, and it challenges us to pivot and to move in a direction that is more cost-effective and actually improved outcomes, which quite frankly, I think we've seen improved outcomes with doing essentially less uh, volume which um, none of us thought could happen three four years ago and we're doing it right so it's it's encouraging
0: if you purposefully focus your efforts it's cool to
2: see what could happen yep that's great you know one year from now i want to have the two of you back because our industry is evolving so much and you've already collaborated with the advisory group as we've developed our continuing care network You're really helping us demonstrate how this careful coordination and communication across the settings help improve and sustain patient outcome. One year from now, you're going to come back and share with our audience where we are and the success that we've had. And so again, I just want to thank you both for joining us. For everyone in our audience, if you'd like more information regarding today's podcast or would like to talk to Trey and Kirsten, please email us at advisorygroup at maryfreebed.com. And until next time, be passionate about rehabilitation and be advised.